Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. You know, it's funny. I feel like this is a movie that I really loved this movie when it came out, um, obviously being an enormous fan of David Fincher's, but also just the historical aspect to it. You know, my mom grew up in LA in the 60s and 70s and the 50s, 60s and 70s. And so this during the height of serial killers. And so this sort of world is something that I just kind of grew up around, even though I grew up in the East Coast. So it was very ripe for me to be in on this movie from the start. But I think the thing that always surprises me and every time I go back to it is just the patience and the pace of it mm. and the carefulness of it. It's not, you know, a high speed, you know, film that's really driving towards a conclusive end. You know, it is really a bit bittersweet, uh, if not, you know, incomplete in terms of the case and things like that, because we just will never know. Yes. But that's not the point of the movie. And I think that is what is so remarkable about it. And so it was a movie that I really loved when I first saw it, but then I feel like it has become more popular in the last 20 years since its release, like more um, or 10, however long it's been in its releases. I feel like it keeps rising to the top whenever people do like Fincher lists. It's always like in the <laughs> one, two slot, which is, which even I feel like when it came out, people were sort of like, well, this isn't Fight Club. This isn't, you know, what we're used to. Um, and that's what I love about it is, and that's what I love about Fincher is that he can just kind of do anything and he's excited to do anything. Welcome to Zodiac Chronicle. 24-part investigation into David Fincher's 2007 genre-altering masterpiece, Zodiac. Adapted from Robert Graysmith's novel by screenwriter James Vanderbilt, the film, of course, stars an incredible ensemble cast led by Jake Gyllenhaal, Robert Downey Jr., and Mark Ruffalo. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Our introduction today was from writer-producer of The Post, Longshot, and one of the writers behind the second season of David Fincher's Mindhunter, Liz Hanna. Before we dive into the theme of the week and the show proper, I'd love to remind you to jump on and rate and review the show wherever you're listening. It's a huge help for those fellow lovers of our brand of obsessive cinematic deep dives. I also want to let you know that the links to our Patreon with a weekly Roman Rant podcast and special uncut Zodiac Sessions interviews, as well as links to our merchandise with artwork from the incredible Brianna Ashby and Amy Reid are in the description or at oneheatminute.com. Joining me today to be a part of the circus, inspired by Zodiac, conducted by the incredible Brian Cox as Melvin Belli, are Los Angeles-based film critic and journalist for the Tribune News Service and Los Angeles Times, part-time lecturer at Chapman University and co-host of the Miami Nice podcast on this very podcast network, the incredible, the awesome, Katie Walsh. Well, I was re-watching it recently. I was just like, this is this movie is a love letter to obsessives and to <laughs> obsession. Former long-running editor of Time Out New York, editor, critic, and writer for hire with bylines at New York Times, Sight and Sound, 
Empire, a Zodiac true believer, Josh Rothkopf. I remember seeing the film twice. Paramount showed it to me twice in February before it came out because they knew I was a huge, huge fan of Fincher from Seven. And and they and I was like, I need to see this film. I think, and then I saw it. I think it was a masterpiece. I need to see it again just to confirm. Before, but but I I really think that this is the reason I was born to be a critic. Like was to <laughs> about this movie. And I remember being in the Paramount screening room, in the screening room by myself, and they're rolling the film for me again by myself for the second time. And I was like, yeah, this is the one. This is definitely the one. And returning writer and film and book critic, Bill Ryan. Theatre director, playwright, film critic, and host of the Ink and Paint podcast, Daniel Lamon. Co-host of the Cinephiles movie podcast, the chief instigator of our brand of cinematic deep dives, my dear friend Stu Coote. And finally, internet movie news trailblazer, editor-in-chief of DarkHorizons.com, the man machine, my dear friend, Garth Franklin. This is the eighth episode of Zodiac Chronicle, Aries Part 2. In this scene, we find ourselves arriving to the Jim Dunbar program with the glorious showman, Brian Cox, playing infamous criminal defense lawyer, Melvin Bella, with the air of royalty and rock stardom. Every episode, we've used a film title to encapsulate our theme. This scene renders an emerging phenomena, serial killer fandom, and the insatiable media impulse for that car crash TV that simply will not let you look away. The frenzy of the Zodiac is about to reach mythical proportions. Conducting the chaos with a relished composure is an icon of American law. It feels fitting that the cruel satire of this attempted defense of this supposed Zodiac deserves a suitably perverse thematic title. So our theme for this week is to kill a mockingbird. So before we get to the scene, let's talk about the real-life character at its center, the ringleader of the scene, one Melvin Belli. Belli was a high-profile San Francisco lawyer with the highest possible profile clients. Belli represented icons such as Muhammad Ali, the Rolling Stones, Jaja Gabor, Errol Morris, Mae West, Tony Curtis, to name a few. However, it was instead the most infamous of his clients that delivered Belli to the level of celebrity in his own right. Belli represented Jack Ruby, the man who murdered Lee Harvey Oswald. Let me have it. I want it. Being let out by uh, Captain Fritz. There is a person. There is Lee been shot. He's been shot. Lee Oswald has been shot. There's a man with a gun. Absolute panic. Absolute panic here in the basement of Dallas Police Headquarters. Detectives have their guns drawn. There is no question about it. Oswald has been shot at point blank range, fired into his stomach. He is shot. He is shot. Oswald. It is Oswald. You're 
Lee Harvey Oswald was the man accused of assassinating President John F. Kennedy in Dallas on the 22nd of November, 1963. During Oswald's capture and preliminary interrogation, he claimed he was a patsy. The murder of Oswald by Jack Ruby lit a conspiratorial fuse that continues to sear institutional distrust in the US and abroad. Here's that very moment once again from Oliver Stone's 1991 thriller, JFK. Somebody just saved a Dallas DA a pile of work. Lou, let's get David Ferry in here anyway. What's wrong? This is crazy. Here's the real Melvin Belli fielding questions to the media scrum as he arrives in Dallas to defend Ruby. But we're not going to discuss any of the case. I understand there's an admonition here not to discuss the case before it gets to trial. And uh, we're guests in this community, so I think we ought to abide by the hospitality of the community, the ethics of the Bar Association, and the rules of court. Can you tell us, um, excuse me, can you tell us who's financing the uh, defense? You make it very inviting to draw me out, but uh, you're going to have to wait on all of this. In the last episode of Zodiac Chronicle, Ares Part 1, we're introduced to Melvin Belli cowering in the back of Dave Tosky's car. The person identifying themselves as the Zodiac Killer had contacted the San Francisco police, saying he'd be willing to call in to Jim Dunbar's AM San Francisco talk show on one condition. Melvin Belli or F. Lee Bailey must accompany Dunbar on air as his legal representation. Bailey who worked with Belli's 90s analogue Johnny Cochran, was a Florida and Massachusetts attorney who came to prominence for the successful appeal of the Sam Shepard murder case, which is said to have been an inspiration for the Fugitive TV series and the film. If you can't picture him in your mind's eye, Nathan Lame played him in the 2016 series The People vs. O.J. Simpson. Before we dive into the scene, here's a quick chat with writer, film and book critic Bill Ryan about another killer whose mythical status was elevated by his direct dialogue with the media. And in this instance, the gut punch that it can be when you realize that the myth may be a lie. And I remember when I first started reading seriously about Jack the Ripper, finding out, first of all, same thing that Avery explains to um, Graysmith, which is just, there's actually not that many victims when you look at the evidence. We, you know, a lot of people have tried to pin as many as a dozen or something like that murders to Jack the Ripper, but it's like five, which isn't good, obviously. <laughs> but but, but it, it starts to, to, the mystery becomes more mundane. And then the big one, though, with Jack the Ripper is that the letters, the famous letters, probably weren't written by him. In fact, they, I, if I remember, I haven't read about him in a while, but I feel like they know that they weren't written by him. 
Yes. And suddenly this giant evil uh, becomes... I don't want to say boring because that's disrespectful to the victims and things, but like this, there's this weird need to make these things seem um, more cosmic in some weird way, some more inexplicable than they really are. I mean, someone has someone has chemistry misfiring in their brain, and they are crazy, and they do these horrible things because of this awful compulsion. But then, but when you have these things like he wrote these weird letters that's signed in the case of Jack Thurber from hell, and then you find out that it might have been like this tabloid journalist in 1888 London who wanted to drum up some business for his own stupid paper, and I felt disappointed. Yes, and I'd never heard that expressed. I like <laughs> I kept that inside me. Never... <laughs> it was your little secret. It was, it was my little secret because you shouldn't be disappointed by something like that. No. But I was because suddenly this thing that I was like so fascinated by in a dark way was now just more grubby awfulness, the same as any other grubby awfulness the world over from time immemorial. It's not that special. And now, let's get to the same. Cookies? Dear Lord, do you ever clean this car? Shit. Get him talking, convince him to meet you somewhere. If you see an opportunity, we want you to suggest Old St. Mary's Church in Chinatown. You'll be tracing the call. Pacific Telephone says you need to keep him on the line for 15 minutes. We can do that, can't we, Jim? Anthony Edwards as Bill Armstrong dishes out directions for Brian Cox's Belli and Tom Verrick as Jim Dunbar. It's in this moment that Verrick embodies the fear beginning to boil in the San Francisco kettle. The composition of the shot, looking from the backs of Belli and Dunbar, is dense. The lighting doesn't fudge the reality of the scene, staging. When Armstrong is providing instructions, his face is cast in shadow. The television studio lighting is designed to envelop the presenters. Extras walk in front of the camera, Ruffalo's Toski stands at the control room. Actors as technicians or technicians made up to look like actors bustle to ensure the show is ready to start on schedule and they can clear the decks for this exclusive interview with the Boogeyman. Cox is sublime in every frame of this movie. Despite the hilarity of his somewhat humiliating introduction, he oozes cool in this moment. Verica's Dunbar is attentive, concerned and compliant. Registering the gravity of the situation in the context of the town and the moment at hand. Cox's Belli, on the other hand, is looking down, taking notes. Nothing about his demeanor suggests that there is anything out of the ordinary with this circus. And is it any wonder? Flying into Dallas to represent the man who killed the assassin who killed the president brought him front and center into an international incident. 15 seconds, clear the set. Here you go, you drunken reprobate. Menescalio. We interrupt our regular program to bring you this news bulletin. Welcome to this special... The awning gap of technological advancement, both from the time that this film was made, the time that it is depicting, and now, is reinforced every time you revisit the film. 
when Armstrong outlines that it will take at least 15 minutes for the telephone company to track the location of the caller, it all but reinforces that they're destined to fail. This is a massive publicity grab for this supposed Zodiac, and they are not going to be able to harness this attempted grab for publicity to enhance their investigation. Fincher shows the city's captivation by taking the audience back to base, back into the newsroom to see a very dusty Paul Avery, played by Robert Downey Jr., and Shorty, played by James Carraway, supplying him with a jolt of caffeine as they can hear the show beginning on the newsroom's television. We also dive into the Graysmith home, and Robert and his eldest son are at the breakfast table. There's a little aside here that follows Jack Sampson's young David Graysmith. He shows his compliance to his dad's wishes, placing his cereal bowl judiciously in the kitchen sink, and he walks into the lounge room and perches behind his father. As if in silence and avoiding sight lines, he'll be allowed to observe this strange and likely disturbing occurrence if he's quiet. Welcome to the special edition of our show, in which we're joined by attorney Melvin Belli, who the Zodiac Killer personally requested to appear. Hey, finish up, buddy, and put it in the sink. Good morning, Melvin. Good morning, Jim. So, the phone lines are open. Mr. Belli is here. Here to help, Jim. Yes, here to help. And we ask the public not to call in so that the Zodiac himself can reach us. I saw your Star Trek, by the way. It was excellent. Shame about the show. Good people. You know, I've often thought of becoming an actor full time. What was your character's name? Gordon. Gordon. His part of an extended conversation you're going to hear over the course of this episode with Garth Franklin and Stu Coote, the first part of which talks about Melvin Belli's Star Trek cameo. But, but the thing that was famous, I remember with this sequence, was uh, the writers, they put it in, um, it was in the very, very first draft, and then there was a scene they thought, oh, this is going to be taken out. We're going to chop start. it. Yeah. Chopped it. But Fincher is the one that insisted it go back in. Yeah. And they made him put it back in, because this is how Fincher really sort of came known, known about the case. A lot of people became aware of the case because of this... Whole incident. Oh, like watching it live on, like yeah. coming on yeah. to because TV. it had. Ha- I mean, just a know. lot of it. I don't think it really hit the public until that threat against the school kids. Yeah, and then that. No, was this this was the public. And, this yeah. was the public coming in. So yeah. like, there's well, who read? The, the, a lot the, of people the, wouldn't read the necessarily read the paper. You're not getting any. Yeah, and it was, no other means. To and, get and it became a national interest once that broke because then like Walt Cronkite was on the news. Yeah. Um, and basically said this is the threat that had happened. And once that happened, obviously his stuff syndicated around the United States and. That so when we get the bell eye scene, which is mm. the scene that we're in, what's so brilliant about it is exactly that. It's that exchange of this is now larger than life. Yeah, of course I'll take it. And and he, he's 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 had a stage set for him, and then he gets to just go and swan about on this stage yeah, yeah. of like you know trying to help one of the most you know it's crazy more serial killers. Than you think? I mean, I, the the Star Trek reference was a joke. It was done by the screenwriters. That I was going to put this little joke because they he's a lawyer, but he, this is a random appearance. He just did it as a guest villain of the week or yeah. the whole thing. But the thing is, it's a big pointed analogy to the whole movie because his character is like, A, it's one of the, it was voted the worst episode of the entire run. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just like the original run. It's like the entire 900 so episodes Shat- series. Yeah, this is the Shatner yeah, yeah, version, yeah. isn't it? Like the but TV he, was, thing, he yeah. was a villain. He was this sort of transparent. He looks like a chandelier, basically. They put him in a big <laughs> boo-boo. And like they made sort of half fade him out of the thing. always are. Not always, Gorgon. Not this time. You can't hide from them. They see you as we see you. 
They know what you are. Even the children learn. You are my future generals. Together we can raise armies of followers. Go to your post. The first great victories are upon us. You will see. We have millions of friends on Marcus 12. We shall exterminate all who oppose us. Our purity of purpose cannot be contaminated by those who disagree, who will not cooperate, who do not understand. They must be annihilated. Don't be afraid. Look at them. But he's a villain who, uh, it was like a bunch of colonists found him, like an energy being, and the, he uses the colonist kids to spread fear to cause all the parents to ah, commit mass suicide. Okay. And does that. Yeah. Through the fear of this, and this is like fear of the kids causing on to the kids. Yeah, this yeah. is like, whoa, this is a yeah. bit, you know, <laughs> I don't think they even realise that, but it actually gets quite on point. Roll the tape. Get the tape. Jim, we have a call. We're going live. Hello? Hello, this is Melvin Belli. Who am I speaking with? This is the Zodiac speaking. Is there something I can call you that's a little less ominous? Sam. Sam. Yes. Sam, do you think you need medical care? Medical, not mental. Do you have health problems? I'm sick. I have headaches. Headaches? I have headaches, too, but a chiropractor stopped them a week ago. I think I can help you, Sam. I'm f- genuinely fascinated, and especially in the contemporary context, because it still happens of, like, yeah, I'm the, I'm the Zodiac killer. Like, yeah, someone, I mean, yeah. people's inclination to be like, I'm the killer. Like, I yeah. did it. I, oh, you I, get I, a lot of that, though. A lot of people, I, hand, them, a lot of people hand themselves in for murders, mm. even here in Australia. They'll come in and confess to, to murders, and they'll only be able to tell the details that have happened in the media. And they'll do sort of long interviews with people who have come in to make confessions yeah. and they, yeah. they, they simply weren't there. It's a strange thing for yeah, it's people. It's a weird phenomenon. Maybe it's seeking a bit of that notoriety as well, whatever. Well, yeah, whatever this whatever this ecosystem is, and this is where I've arrived to this scene and loving it back in the context of the movie, is I've arrived back around, like the circle's come back and it's gone, no, you're exactly right. This is, this is the circus. So when Tosky mm. goes, please... There's this fatalistic tone in their exchange where it's like, once this goes, and it goes like in our parlance, viral, mm. it's gone. And this scene is like peak viral. It's oh, like yeah. I want to talk to I want to talk to the most famous lawyer in San Francisco on television. Yeah. Um, and I want him to meet me on the corner of a street and there's like helicopters going. It's like it does reminisce OJ, like pre predated. Oh, really yeah, with <laughs> Well, the fascinating thing because I remember they wanted Fincher wanted Oldman for it. Yeah, to get Oldman and get him in a, under a ton of prosthetic makeup. Yeah. And they tried it and they tested it and it didn't really work. And then they got Cox in, who Cox is like can do that flamboyant. Yeah, oh, man. offer very, like so well. the turn of a dime as well. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, you yeah. go. That is such a constant professional a that can come in. But yeah. I love even the way he turns it on in this, where he's like lying down. And he's like, "This guy's a psycho." And he goes, "Well, you're worried about." He's the one you want to help. You're worried about having a pot shot. <laughs> Hope you can do the thing. And he's like, don't worry. When the lights are like, and you see when it. From the light the minute, is on, detective. Yeah, from the minute, like, he sort of must from going upright in the, like, in the police <laughs> yeah, car yeah. to go out, he's on. And then the way, the way he commands the screen with that slight laid back, 
talking to the other presenter yeah, yeah. about Star Trek and about <laughs> everything else. It's beautiful. But I, I sometimes get that feeling where you're like, I want to be in the. Mo- I want to watch the movie that Brian Cox thinks he's in. Yes, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, that's the. There are, there are various films yeah, and performances like that where there's yeah. that performance that's so, just you know, it's on its own that you just want to see that. Yeah, movie. that's the <laughs> one. I want to know what. Like, you know. I spoke to. We Mex- also call it Gina Gershon and Showgirls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I spoke <laughs> to Tyler Perry and Gone Girl. Uh, I, I, I spoke. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Sam, how's he tracing his calls? Sam, we'd like you to know that we are not tracing these calls. It's a long, difficult process and ineffective with these short calls. Sam? Uh Uh-huh? We're not tracing these calls. You have my word. Okay. Sam, you need to tell me what your problem is. I don't want to go to the gas chamber. I have headaches. I don't get them. That is fucked up. You want to live, don't you? Well, this is your passport. How long have you been having these headaches? Since I killed a kid. I don't want to be hurt. Why is he calling? I don't want to go to the gas chamber. You won't get hurt if you talk to me. You're not going to the gas chamber. I wouldn't think they would ask for capital punishment. We should ask the district attorney. Do you want me to do that, Sam? Do you want me to talk to the district attorney? Yeah, because it's it's chilling in a way that like the whole that could be your blackout and there could be something happening, but it still still doesn't quite land for me. Even on this one, it feels I don't know why it feels a bit forced. Maybe, and that's what I mean. If that's really how it happened, yeah, then you're like, well, that's how it was. Like you almost need that audio. In, in the film itself. <laughs> so here it is. The recording of the real Jim Dunbar interview to directly contrast with what we're listening to right now. Talk to us. Just tell us what's going on in, in, inside you right now, Sam. Please. I have headaches. Right. How long have you had those headaches, Sam? In a long time. Since I killed a kid. Well... Was it before December that you had the headaches? Yes. Were you in service that you might have had the, an injury in service? Did you ever fall out of a tree or downstairs? Were you ever unconscious? I don't know. You don't remember. Does aspirin do you any good? No. Doesn't do any good. Sam, that stuff never did me any good either. When I had headaches. Sam, let me ask you a question. Did you, um, did you attempt to call this program one other time when Mr. Belli was with us? What? Did you try to call us one other time about two, two or three weeks ago when, when Mel Belli was with us? Yes. And you, and, uh, well, and you we couldn't were, get through. And couldn't get talking. through. The phones were tied up. Was that it? Yes. Right. Sam, let, let me ask you this. There's some reason why you go to a particular doctor or a particular priest, and some reason why apparently you, you uh, wanted to talk to, to me or Lee. Is it that you feel that we have compassion for people who get in trouble? Or is it you feel that uh, we can do something for you? Or is it you feel that uh, we uh, have enough integrity that if we promise you something, that uh, we're going to stick to it? Well, let's find out what, what, why he wanted to talk to Why did you want to talk to Mr. Belli, Sam? I don't want to be hurt. 
I guess that's the problem with the tropes, right? That everything's been done now of like uh, the uh, mentally ill like person having the blackout and doing things when they're blacking out. Hey, but and but a lot of these things go they go back years. It's like uh, Jack the Ripper was very famous for doing sending in all these letters to the newspapers which yeah. sounded kind of you know fundamentally broken in the brain yeah all this kind of weird language that was just a bit almost like preschool of weird rudimentary language yet the actual killings were done by someone with the skill of a surgeon yeah yeah this was not the case of you know yeah yeah which things. is a, and i guess that's the trope and that's yeah. why it's become a trope but it's that weird and, and i love that looking at this scene and you see that the thing you've seen 10,000 times in other movies of like the escape mental patient who's killing people like you know case in point Halloween like one of the greatest slasher movies yeah. of all time like um, it's and, but that because he's not seeking fame he's just a shark no 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 <laughs> yeah. but he is but I'm just saying escape mental patient wants to kill people like yeah. that trope is done a million times and I see this and I go what if John Carpenter or someone saw that and was like, oh, escape mental patient who yeah. kills people yeah. and saw it on this broadcast. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Potentially. And, so, and, 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 and therefore that, that, that weird thing of like, so the this, and this yeah. case has so many of those things. And that's part of like this weird, that again, one of the weirdest elements of this case, one of the great elements of this movie, because it is such a San Francisco movie and such a movie about pop culture is just how like pop culture and Zodiac and Zodiac being influenced by pop culture to design who he was, what his identity was, and then therefore how that like cycled through is so like it's this crazy like chicken egg conversation constantly yeah. that is had. Um, well, the, and, fir- the very first slasher film, it's really considered the very first slasher film, was Black Christmas, the original. Yes, which was 1975, and that was a, exactly that an escape mental patient hides out in a sorority house yeah. and starts knocking out thing, and he, it's the whole language, the whole sort of random screamings. Yeah. And, What was that, Sam? I did not say anything. We heard a scream. That was my headache. You sound like you're in a great deal of pain. My head aches. I'm so sick. I'm going to kill them. I'm going to kill them. Fantastic. Sam. Let's meet and talk, just us. Okay. How about old St. Mary's Church in Chinatown? No. In front of the Daily City St. Vincent de Paul at 10.30. I'll see you there. Take care of yourself, Sam. talked about this movie you said this was the one scene that you probably had yeah why? i just i, I was I, most fascinated why it was because i was re-watching it now i'm like again it's like it doesn't really stand out as a particularly bad thing no it wasn't a scene that i hated it was a scene that like grated on me in the tone of this movie because this movie totally uh, it's it is very different i it, agree yeah it's it's like i think sometimes it's that whole like what is the movie that you as an individual want and what is the movie that is being presented i think in I think in previous watches of the movie, um, and maybe this is me just becoming a little bit more like a, a having a different taste and palate as I become more of a cinephile, is I will go with I will go with your weird tonal shifts if the whole movie 
sticks together. And I think at the time, I was more like, it's so percussive, 26 minutes of all these deaths happening. You start to get introduced to these characters. These guys are putting it all together. And then there's this giant, florid, you know, like embellished Melvin Belli scene that happens. And I didn't appreciate it for what it was in the context of the movie at the time, I feel. What I started, I, I, I kind of was like, can we get back to the story? But mm. what it is, and this is how my appreciation changed, and I think where Zodiac started to come up in the upper echelons, is the story is less about the guy's actual murders. The story is about the impact and the yeah. terror and and all of these decisions the compounding yeah, yeah. the terror of the guy that and, then affected and also, everyone. That everybody is whatever the forum. Everyone is seeking a taste of celebrity. That's yeah, yeah. That, so what that, everyone is. Everyone, but that was the whole thing like, for me. Everyone wants the to be scene. A, plays as sort of the macro thing of what becomes a more micro thing further on, and what the whole rest of the movie is about. But it's the, about the it's, obsession and the celebrity. It's the, macabre, sort of thing the yeah, yeah. It's the macabre like that. You could have the the body on the ground. Yeah. And the, and the news reporter goes, "Well, how do I look?" Yeah, you look great. You look great. Well, good, and you know, and while the family, you know, the family of the deceased is crying <laughs> yeah, on the yeah. other side, and you're like, yeah. well, at least I'm going to come out of this yeah. looking all right. Yeah, like, yeah. it's it's in, it, it's the switch from the police procedural really yeah. through to something a bit more different. That's yeah. what it is for now, me. That's how I see it. Who I like because plus it has who, the be, has the best comedy line in the entire film. Who is him he? on the him on the taxi? Yes, on the floor. It's like, well, Jesus Christ, did you not clear this gap? <laughs> or, so, or with a close runner-up being, you guys really know how to do a secret meeting. <laughs> you see, with these like CSI style, like one-liner, like just waiting for the who to kick you. Here's Josh Rothkopf on the fact that celebrity would play into a case like Zodiac and continue to play into cases like Zodiac from here on out. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that that's really one of the more sophisticated ideas in Zodiac is the idea that celebrity would play into it. Yes. The, the idea that, that this would become, like you say, a circus and there would be a, a media sensation about it, I think that's that's a very prophetic note to tease out of the material. And, you know, obviously that's partly the, the screenplay as well as Fincher. But but uh, I, think, I think those notes played for me they played for me well in the moments. It's not that I remember who I didn't know who Mel, Melvin Bell I was. I'm not that old, but I, <laughs> Nor but I. I yes, but I do. But I do know that. Um, and I honestly, I didn't really even know much about the Zodiac Killer at all. I I was working with a, or I had worked with a colleague at the time, at Time Out New York, Mike D'Angelo, who was obsessed with the Zodiac case and would always talk about it. And he's. Uh, kind of a contrarian in the sense that he does not like David Fincher's Zodiac, although he knows everything about the Zodiac. <laughs> I remember seeing Brian Cox in the film. I remember seeing Brian Cox in, in Zodiac and, and feeling even in the moment that I was glad he was in it because I think it needed that kind of thing. Jake Gyllenhaal is doing a very concentrated performance in this film. Robert Downey Jr., so incredibly likable and on the upswing at that point, you know, and after seeing Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and wanting him to return to that kind of sharp flintiness, but yes. his 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 character is um, is so he's so uh, beaten down by the end of the film. Basically, everyone that we know come to know and love in Zodiac gets reduced to a, a shell of who they are. Yes, um, even Chloe Sevigny, that that you're just sort of like. Um, I mean, I, I needed the movie to make those kind of modulations into the media circus. Yes. I needed the movie to have 
have overhead shots driving over the Golden Gate Bridge, um, where it was almost like a conventional thriller and the music would swell. Because otherwise, you're left with something that's just so oppressive. This yes. movie is, is re I mean, oppressive in a way that we love because maybe we're gluttons for punishment, <laughs> but, but oppressive in a oppressive in a way that it's rare that Hollywood movies ever get. Um, Chinatown as well. I mean, there is a reason why Fincher loves that movie. And it's because it doesn't lie to you. It says that there are no happy endings. And I know that that's a very trite conventional way of putting it. I feel like even these quote-unquote happier moments in Zodiac are moments that are more entertaining, like the Melvin Belli stuff, um, or, you know, family, you know, shenanigans with getting kids <laughs> ready or whatever. They're there because otherwise the film would just be unbearable. Yeah. I mean, it would be fucking unbearable <laughs> watching a two-and-a-half-hour-long movie that wasn't that didn't have at least that. That and, didn't have at least a date with, you know, Chloe Seventy in it. But we're also looking at this... We've got echoes of this nowadays. Like we've just seen, like Gary Jublin go through his thing and like get fired, and in the um, now he's on like appearing on Channel 9's investigative show and all these sort of things. So it's like this Channel 9's investigative show, married at first sight. Yeah, <laughs> but it's like this idea of how we have this fascination with these people, but even at the back of tragedy, it's again building your brand off something, and yeah. then coming like it can be able to grow from anything and go. All right, now you get a bit of a social media following. It's just a, it's an odd time, and I guess this is. Oh, it's it's like well. Nicole, like Nick, you know, we always talk about OJ, but like Nicole Simpson was hacked to pieces. Yeah, like her head nearly came off. Yeah, yeah, it, like, she, yeah. she was she, not, she she was hacked to pieces, and people like Johnny Cochran, he that he he was so hyper aware of his branding that like he became a South Park character. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but that started with a woman being hacked to pieces yeah yeah, yeah. and that was uh, that was yeah that circus was an initial a fascinating thing it was yeah like if you watching television at that time it was on like entertainment tonight and it was on everything things, every, yeah it, it, they all became famous every single lawyer and that thing yeah. became well, famous that's why and then they the got kardashians <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. and they got re-famous yeah when they, they made the tv show yeah, yeah. but then uh, the strange thing with this is like it's funny coming off all the president's men yes yeah oh well that's the For, fascinating thing with Having done his all the presidents yeah. men again, and you see the journalism rooms. Yes. Well, maybe they still they lift the joke from. Yeah. Well, I don't know if it's it's probably more of a journalist joke more than it's from all the I presidents. I finished it. But yeah, finished it. So where is it? Well, I've just got to write it. Well, <laughs> you know, it's, I've just got to type it yeah, up. Yeah, like typing is the yeah, writing. Like, yeah. But it's the with that was all about the power and the responsibility of the media to go after these things, and now it switches over to. Well, we've developed it as an important outlet. Now, do we have a responsibility not to tell them, or is the news just meant to push anything that comes along and go? Well, it's not our role is to disseminate, yeah. not to not to vet. And then, what line? What responsibility do we have? Uh, and it, then, in the early stages of that movie, I I adore those editorial quandaries because they're sitting there in that room, and. There's a tipping. I've said it a couple of times on the show. It's like a tipping point because it's like we should run it. We should be the first to we'll run scoop. it. We'll, we'll scoop. We'll scoop the it. money. Think of the business. Yeah, think of the business. Like, you and you, and and you've got the editorial responsibility of going right there and there. Yes, maybe this is a scoop. But then, like the fact that they scooped him and they published it, and then it was mm. out there, means that when he makes a threat, that even though they know it's probably illegitimate based on the other things that he said, they then have to 
they have to broadcast it then. Yeah. They have to. Yeah. They have no choice. They have given him an outlet. They've created that relationship. And I love that moral quandary in mm. that newsroom because I think after a while, they just start to see all the people who are closest to it fall away and like implode. And it's like, yeah, okay, cool. Like, we want to distance ourselves from this, but it's like, it's like, no, San Francisco Chronicle is where it happens. Well, the Chronicle doesn't suffer as well. Like people do. So it's like, that's like the whole, the system rolls on. Mm -hmm. We get like the new reporters come in and it just, the, the, the machine keeps going. Yes. It's just, maybe that's how it's meant to be with all of this stuff anyway. Yes. And that again, ties back to that sort of overarching thing of obsession and just that the machine goes on and, the machine goes on, another lead, another dead end. Here's Daniel Lamon on that obsession's drive and what it means for the Zodiac to exist and what it means for David Fincher, perhaps, that the Zodiac exists. Like, I remember that being a big thing when, I, when it came out, was kind of being blown away by the idea that the person who did this could be sitting in a cinema watching this. That the mm. person, like, the, similar to what it would have been like for Bong Joon Ho to make Memories of Murder and have the idea of the person who committed these murders may actually be watching this film. And that was so palpable watching it and unsettling he, he watching look, it. He looks a little like, bit like you. Yeah. That, and the description that everybody gives of this guy, he's like the kids, they go, he's normal looking. <laughs> that's it he's normal looking you don't know like the 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 thing that is comforting as a compa- as a as a as a comparison the thing that's comforting for us with manson is that manson looks like he's crazy like he's mm. got the crazy hair and he's got the crazy eyes and he goes and puts the fucking swat sticker on his head the zodiac is a lumbering white guy with a crew cut and how many lumbering white guys with crew cuts are walking around san francisco and california that we don't pay attention to that's his power is that he is both extraordinary and completely and totally ordinary <laughs> and that's the th- and that's the thing that they can't that's the reason why they can't find him because he's hiding in plain sight and at the end of the film where the film where you think ah we found him the film goes no these men hide in plain sight and what we do is we give them attention and by giving them attention we just make them we just give them exactly what they want but hey, it sells it sells papers and great paperback books. I don't want to go to the gas chamber. I have headaches. If I kill, I don't get them. You want to No, it's not him. It's the voice. The voice is too high. It's too young. Alright, thanks for coming down, Brian. you have black That's okay, I got it. The recreation is dynamic and economical. The staggering reaction and candor of Sam on the other end of the line ripples through the studio, the audience. Hell, even the hardened, cynical members of the Chronicle office find something deplorable about this maniac's raving going to air. Cox's Belli is held in a close-up before the race towards the suggested meeting place. The stillness of the close-up helps to reinforce the gravity of the moment, but gives Belli's portrayal a window for something unguarded and genuine. In Cox's gaze as Belli, to punctuate the scene, there's a gravity, a certainty, that if this man does hand himself in, Belli will play human shield for the most hated man in America. Again. The next moment, tracking shot of Belli waltzing out of a town car with a swarm of reporters and even a news chopper, 
restore Bella's stage persona and demonstrate an utterly seamless integration of visual effects and rigorous production design. The period correct look of San Francisco in the cold light of day is something so hard to achieve. It's a miracle. When we return to the TV studio as Tosky and Armstrong revise the call, there's a blink and you'll miss it return of Patrick Scott Lewis's Brian Hartnell. Hartnell's miraculous survival of the Lake Berryessa attack did not dissuade him from helping the police like it did with Mark Majot and attempting to find the man who so savagely killed his friend, in Hartnell's case, Cecilia Shepard. When Hartnell contrasts this high pitch, cagey caller with the depth of the voice of the man in the executioner's hood and the calm way he handled himself, it's clear that the mental trauma is crisp. Tosky and Armstrong are rigorously going through the details, debriefing the events with an air of anticipation of the fallout. It's another scene that one can marvel at the economy of the dialogue, the effective delivery of the essential factual information and the comfort and isolation of a darkened control room kind of bunker. Why would they want to leave and answer that this chaos is simply another distraction? Here's Katie Walsh for our first astrological reading of the series for director David Fincher. And you have a, a filmmaker like David Fincher, who is an obsessive, obsessively detailed filmmaker. And I did look up his astrological chart. <laughs> I know, I couldn't sense. wait to ask you about it. <laughs> so you're going to educate me today on astrological charts. I love you like, oh, of course, he's a... He's a Virgo. He's a Virgo. And <laughs> so, uh, but not only is he a Virgo son. So Virgos are known for being like sort of very organized, very anal retentive, like very OCD. Like that's the stereotype of the Virgo is that they are like obsessively detailed and organized. And, but not only is he a Virgo son, he is a, he has a Virgo stellium in his chart. So a stellium is where you have um, like, I think it's three or four planets in Virgo in your chart. So that means his chart is full of Virgo and not only is his chart full of Virgo, but he has a Virgo Mercury, which means that like Mercury dictates like how you communicate and, um, you know, it corresponds to the, the, the Greek, the Roman God of Mercury, who is the, the messenger or the communicator. So, uh, you just, I'm just imagining his <laughs> obsessive Virgo communication <laughs> style. <laughs> and when you watch like the special features and stuff and my, jaw was on the floor watching them do the set decoration for the Lake Berryessa scene because not only does Fincher deduce that they're not in the right spot for the murder much to the surprise of Ken Narlo, the real Ken Narlo who was there um, just simply by like feeling soil and like listening to traffic noise <laughs> but he then cuts down trees choppers them in cements them into holes in the ground has the set decorator guys like planting tufts of grass and like in the water like wrestling a giant oak tree (laughs) and it's just he's like it has to look exactly the same as it did in 1969 or attention to detail i mean it's just it's very virgo of venture to do that (laughs) that's okay i got it They pulled off the trace. Our Daily City no-show called from a mental institution. Oakland PD's operator is sure the man she talked to had a deeper voice. Calmer. 
might have actually been him. That's all for this episode of Zodiac Chronicle. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe to this show so you're the first to know about all upcoming episodes, the next one coming up in a week's time. If you cannot get enough, Unplugged Zodiac Sessions will be available exclusively on the One Heat Minute Patreon, which is linked in our show notes. This episode of Zodiac Chronicle was researched, written, and presented by me, Blake Howard. The music of Zodiac Chronicle is composed, produced, and performed by Chris Duffy, the Duff of Los Espinas. Our companion, I am not Avery. Zodiac Chronicle stickers and badges were designed by the very talented Amy Reed, who you can find on Instagram at, at ai.me.me or via email at amy.read0310 at gmail.com. Until next time, good bye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.